0: Welcome to another Dishcast. They keep coming, don't they? It's a beautiful day in Washington, D.C. I'm still here. Provincetown has yet to lure me northward. And actually, these, these months in D.C., March and April, are just sublime. They are, along with, I think, basically September and October, the just gorgeous months to live in the nation's capital, which is a beautiful city for those of you who've never visited especially all of you in New York who've never, ever gotten on the Acela and come down to even say hi to us, not that we have an inferiority complex about it. But anyway, today, those four months are probably the best, the only times that D.C. is better than New England. Huh. Well, thank you for that contribution, John, even though I haven't even introduced you That's yet. Right. <laughs> John Ward is here. John Ward is, a. I would say, we're friends. We, we go back a bit. He is the chief national correspondent for Yahoo News and the host of the Long Game podcast. His first book was Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter and the Fight That Broke the Democratic Party. It's all about that classic primary campaign back in 1980. Yep. And his new book, however, which we're going to talk about today, which is really a much more personal book, and I would say quite of a, a sort of... I don't know. You bear your heart in this book, and your soul to some extent. Is called testimony inside the evangelical movement that failed a generation. And you can also follow John's writing on his Substack, Border Stalkers, and at johnwardwrites.org. dot org. That's all you got correct. Got it all. Yeah. Thank you. John, <laughs> we met we met a while ago at the one of those conferences around. Where they invite people who are journalists who actually still have some traces of religious faith. So there were three of us. Right? <laughs> Maybe there was more than that. But but John is John is a John. One of the reasons why John is a is a fascinating person. Let me just say is that is that we live in a world where we now have very two hermetically sealed bubbles of culture and information. We have a rather traditional world, and we have a left-liberal world, an elite world, and a not-so-elite world, although it's, there are, obviously both sides are jumbled up to some extent. And the worlds are becoming almost uncomprehensible to each other. And we're having a very hard time understanding where the other side of the political equation is coming from. Into this lack of mutual understanding, we have social media and Donald Trump and every other Factor of postmodern cray cray entering into the culture, and here is someone who actually does know both places from the inside out. Someone who grew up in an evangelical fundamentalist bubble, in a way, and who now lives, although he hasn't, he still has that that those connections and that evangelical tradition as part of his life. Nonetheless, lives among us here in the. <laughs> left, liberal, secular world of Washington media and politics and knows people who have absolutely no understanding of where he's from and also knows people where he's from who have absolutely no understanding of mm. the way people mm. live in this city and in many others.
1: And, and, yeah.
0: and just, so this book really, in a way, is, first of all, it's the story of your life as an evangelical and as a writer. It's also a story about America in your lifetime and the evolution of this evangelical movement into something that is currently, in your view, extraordinarily toxic and astray. John, tell me exactly what it was like to grow up in the 70s in, and the 80s in the, in, the, in the Jesus movement of your parents. Tell us a little bit about your parents and where they were from.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I always feel a little bit insecure around people like you, like you yourself. You have such a, this is going to be way too laudatory, but you do have an amazing brain and intellect, and I'm more of a a crockpot. I kind of... Work slowly. Take some time to like get to where I'm going, and, and and I also just envy the fact that you don't have five kids who are taking up at least fifty percent of your. We have five uh, children we, now. We have five kids, and that takes up so much of my time. and I love them and I'm grateful for them but my envy the amount of time you get to read and, and think and talk about all, all the stuff you're doing but I think the thing we have in common is that we both and I'm not again, I'm not putting myself on your level. I think I, think I have John, a lot. John, stop.
0: Stop. The humility. Well, I'm serious. The humility I'm serious. is like is, 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 is excessive. Yeah. Uh, it
1: is. It is. But the thing I think we have in common is that we both really have a hunger for reality. And, and that's why I, I feel an affinity
0: for you. And I appreciate that about you. But- and a little, slightly, maybe we share, given where we're from, a certain masochism in seeking the truth, knowing that it will hurt to some extent. It will hurt to, but- to, to, to offend people in mm-hmm. our past and in our present. You're
1: All- better at offending people.
0: I think I'm a t- I'm definitely <laughs> You're much I better can, at it. I can offend people very easily, and I could be a lot better at it. I'm. I'm. But, uh, but you are a reporter first, yeah. first and foremost, which is not your role. I mean, so I, sure. I think you understand. The other thing I would say about John, for, for readers, for listeners who are listening, is that he is a reporter. He's a White House reporter, an old-fashioned reporter, mm. and you can see that from. So we have a different role, true. John. Yeah, and yeah. and if I had five children, I would I would be in awe of that achievement. And I will tell you that I'm in awe of the achievement of having five children. I, look, it's, it wasn't something that was going to be in my life, but I'm thrilled. Other people are doing it, and and I understand the kind of responsibilities that that it means. But you still you have produced. Two big books in a few years. How many years? Like th- two years, three uh, years?
1: You know, s- several. I think I started the first one in 2014
0: or so. so. Yeah, but you published it when? In, in 19. Yeah. In 19. So yeah, not yeah. that long ago, and yeah. now you have another big book. Yeah. And you're doing your work all the time as a White House correspondent. But tell me, your, your parents-
1: my parents grew up very mainline. My dad was Catholic, my, and I write about this in, in, in the book and give a little bit of background about my dad and mom's family, but my dad's family is super interesting. His dad, my grandfather, was a sports rock star. He was a college football All-American in the early 50s at the University of Maryland, and they won national championships, and he made us call him hard guy, which we all laughed about in you know, until he passed away about 15 years ago. And now it's like a term of endearment. But my dad was raised Catholic, very Irish Catholic, very stoic. Not a lot of emotion. My mom was raised Presby- Presbyterian, World War II veteran for a father. Her parents divorced. So they came out of that that war era. They were baby boomers and they were both looking in the late 60s, early 70s for meaning. And they got caught up in the Jesus movement that I would say bona fide revival, whatever that term means, you know, it means many things. But right around college age, they both and a lot of their friends got caught up in this born again Jesus movement thing. And it, it really defined their lives, but and still does to this day. But I was born in 77. Uh, you know, by that time, they had been in this in this movement for several years, probably since for the early 70s. And they were starting a church right when I got when I was born. I was the first baby dedicated in this new church that they made out of nothing. You know, they just kind of turned their back on mainline, you know, denominationalism. They turned their back on tradition, on history, all of that. And so
0: I grew it's up- It's kind of interesting sometimes to think of the evangelical, the modern evangelical movement as arising in the 60s. It's, we often understand aspects of it to be much older than that. But in fact, there is this, this rebirth of a very emotional. Yeah. It's all about feelings. Yeah. It's all about expression. It is, it is cut off from historical tradition. You're having these church services in gymnasiums in 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 in, in, high school auditoriums high school there's a
1: huge pharaoh head in the back of the the public high school auditorium a huge what head a pharaoh head a pharaoh head yes because there were it was we had church at magruder high school what's a pharaoh head though like the face of a pharaoh like the colored it it was from me english what's a pharaoh oh the 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 king of egypt
0: oh a pharaoh okay i'm sorry yeah and so yeah <laughs> I'm sorry so, i was thinking it was a small animal of some sort but so no, we're no. we're, pharaoh. Meeting, yeah, okay, we're meeting
1: in the in the auditorium of magruder high school in gaithersburg maryland in the probably early 80s and the the pharaoh had probably 30 feet high is in the back of the auditorium from their production of joseph and the amazing technicolor dreamcoat and you know in, in earlier iterations of our meetings i just have these memories from very young of, of people marching around the halls of the public high school we met in and trying to pray against demons in the building and and even like cast in my memory it was casting demons out of the walls of the building that sort of thing but your point about emotion and experience is key that i think is the lasting legacy of my upbringing is this focus on imminent experience of the divine in a way that is bodily and emotionally intense. And I think that's, you know, not all bad because I think that there are some real benefits of, of being sort of in towards seeking an, an imminent experience of the divine.
0: But if that's all that you've got, it goes off the rails. But but that took the form of speaking in tongues, of, yeah. of falling out in church, of, of dancing maybe, or what, what other—in I mean, a typical yeah. service. Yeah, yeah what would be the emotional
1: the most the most common stuff i mean it kind of kind of uh, moderated over time but early on early days they would have all kinds of stuff they would have people lots of women in flowing dresses up on stage dancing they would have a regular thing where people would come up and give words of knowledge or words of prophecy and just sort of kind of channel what they thought god was telling them to say to everyone and that got kind of you know clamped down on over time. There was a period in the in the mid nineties where there were a lot of churches going through a really bizarre, wild experience of, you know, the Holy Spirit as they considered it to be, called the Toronto Blessing. And that was when people were like falling out, falling down, being covered with sheets, shaking, dancing, even in some places barking like animals. That was and that was a kind of a interesting hinge point for our church and for a lot of ch- a lot of churches which we can get into if you want but j- by and large the most common things were speaking in tongues raising your hands prophecy
0: a lot of that sort of channeling god and what was the if you could summarize what was the the core belief system because presumably this is not it doesn't sound like a biblically fixated church or is it no
1: very okay very very so
0: alongside this there's bible study there and the the services have Mm -hmm. exposition of the scriptures and i see
1: it became more expositional over time i Mm -hmm. would say early on it was probably more topical preaching Mm -hmm. and then over time they began to be a little more attempting to be rigorous in their preaching And it became, my church became, went from charismatic Pentecostal to right after that Toronto period in the mid nineties, we became hardcore Calvinists. So I experienced actually a really interesting variety of experiences because early on we were basically quasi Pentecostal. And then around the time I became most intense in my faith, which was around age 20, we were hardcore Calvinists, which was part of a rising movement of what Colin Hansen, who I think was that. Wrote about for Christianity Today. He wrote a book called Young, Restless, and Reformed. And Al Mohler is probably one of the better-known representatives of that sort of
0: neo-Calvinist movement that was popular twenty years ago. The New Calvinism, it was called. Yes. Now, for your average dishhead, many will know what Calvinism means, but but tell me what flavor of Christianity that is in in the modern world. I mean, how does that translate? So I understand Calvinism to be basically. Everything I'm supposed to not believe in as a Catholic—that <laughs> there is mm. predestination, yep. that that you are saved or not depending upon God's—that right. there is a, an extraordinary helplessness on the part of humans to do anything, right. to make the world better or themselves better. This 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 sort of Augustinian sense of utter utter degeneracy in in human nature. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think when you have a, a backdrop of people coming into the faith. In a, in, a, in a really intense way in the 70s and 80s, and turning their back on tradition, there's a vacuum of gravitas. And so there huh. was a certain subset of, of people from that world, like our church, who I think wanted some more intellectual rigor. And this new Calvinism presented a, a veneer of that because it's, you know, it's got a whole system of theology based going back to Augustine and John Calvin. And, uh, you know, in its most pure radical form, it does do all the things you just said. I mean, you can't get to God unless he chooses you. You have no agency. And uh, the thing that it played out the most for us was the emphasis on original sin, indwelling sin. And so we just went (laughs) crazy looking for, you know, any imperfection in ourselves. And some people took that more seriously than others, but I was 20, 21, and I'm already pretty introspective and pretty intense and so it was a pretty unhappy period for me, Andrew.
0: <laughs> yeah, although when I read the read the book, your childhood was was, was not terribly unhappy. No, my childhood um, was great. You yeah. seemed to have a very kind of normy adolescence. You were really great at sports. Yeah. You were a jock. You fit in. Yeah, that's true. And you, you feel that way to me today. I mean, you're very straightforward, easy to get along with, dude. But but driving all this was also this, this faith that you inherited from your parents. Right. That how did you practice it? Is it was it prayer? Was it Bible study? Was it, or was it just this this constant mindset of your own failings, your own sin? I notice you know these things go deep. We, we started this podcast with you apologizing for just not being good enough, <laughs> and. That's a very common thing among those of us who grew up in quite strict, yeah. conservative, yeah. religious yep. traditions. Yep. I always tell this story when I was a kid. I went, saw my mom, and I. she was leaving for work, and I said, Mom, can I ask you a question? She said, yeah, wh- wh- what? Yeah, I said, does God know everything about you? And she said, yeah, of course he does. I said, I mean, everything, even even your most innermost thoughts and she said absolutely and then i said well i don't think i don't think he's going to like me very much mm. but me. Mm. there was this very deep sense from the get-go that you were you were a bad person yeah and you had to prove somehow every day that you weren't and some of that meant finding a set of rules that could give you an absolutely clear understanding that you are good as opposed to bad
1: mm-hmm.
0: as long as you stay on the right side of those those rules and sometimes that can become sort of certainly in my mind when i was at my most intense and religious as you were very very passionate understanding of the intricacies of all of it and when were you most intense i would say in my early teens maybe and then through my through my early 20s yeah not dissimilar to yeah. you and i and i think especially also you You're not stupid, so you're also aware also that where you're from, the world that you're from, is not where a lot of other people are. and So there's a certain amount of displacement from the broader culture and insecurity towards the broader culture. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things you talk about, the the way in which the evangelical world having kind of walled itself off in some ways and sticking to its its core principles and ideas and nonetheless felt utterly inferior when it came to things like music i mean you i mean for example your church services a lot of it was was musical and a lot of the music um, was 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 jesus music it wasn't i mean in, in catholicism we had things stuff going on forever we had we had a rite that 2000 years old almost you know there were things we could just always just repeat every week yeah. and rituals we had to just perform yeah. but you guys had to come up with new material all the time i mean when the catholics tried to do it in the 70s it was god awful folk music stuff that make you want to just curl up and die it was so spiritually depressing but you guys had you know you had the eric Cartman jesus <laughs> jesus music right yeah, yeah. The valley of Christ, 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 Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back though to what you said about the insecurity man I, I
1: think lots of people probably most people deal with that right this sense of I don't belong or I'm not good enough and I think my my dyna- my sense of that has been exacerbated or intensified by by my upbringing by my religion and to some degree that's unhealthy and to some degree it's you know probably helped me by by being really hard on myself in ways that are are sometimes good. I just think my particular unique, not unique to myself, but particular brand of of, or or flavor of trying to deal with it is to be as open about it as possible. I think some people go the other way and try to manufacture a veneer of something else. But I I just have always felt like, you know, I can kind of take it on the chin, the embarrassment. Of of being honest about my own insecurities.
0: Your and, social life from your childhood through adolescence and early adulthood into your twenties mm-hmm. was primarily around other evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you're aware of the outside world, but it's still slightly outside the periphery of your vision, and your direct vision. So yeah, I mean, we, I, I, I try to describe
1: how they constructed this world. I mean, all of our relationships, most of our time was spent. You know, with people from our church and the worldview, which you referenced earlier, was basically, I think a lot of it was formed by this uh, rapture based view of the end times, which was very popular in the 60s and 70s. Hal Lindsey's the late great planet Earth and then some movies called Thief in the Night, which led to the Left Behind series, that kind of whole stream of, you know, Jesus is going to come back. After people are raptured and there's a thousand years tribulation, it's kind of, you know, esoteric. So you theology. both have the new Calvinism and this. That's in the background that shaped our whole way of thinking about every, the, the, the world outside the four walls of our church. And so we kind of withdrew, you know, into ourselves, all our relationships, all our time. So all of what I knew was that except for through sports. And also we started a school. And so we, we only went to school around kids from families who were in the church, taught by people from the church. It was very, very insular. So all I really know outside of that was through sports, through football and baseball. And, 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 you know, I didn't really care that much about church. I didn't take it that seriously growing up because I was much more interested in sports. And then, you know, around age 20, I got reeled in and became
0: really all, all, all in on it. So what happened then? who reeled you in
1: people in the church they hired some people to be more intentional in organizing the college age meetings and and my my experience of church at that time became a dynamic of trying to recreate a spiritual emotional high through going to meetings and through even you know doing singing and bible reading and praying in my own room you know that it was Mm -hmm. a really a really again i'm pretty you know type A in a way, like trying to accomplish the most I can accomplish. And I wanted to be the best Christian I could be. So I tried to recreate that experience in my own, my own room. I, you know, participated in all the meetings and all that. And so it was a cycle of that, followed by the inevitable failure, you know, of, uh, you know, a young man who can't have sex, who can't even really date because of the rules of our, of our subculture. And, you know, the internet is coming along and there's porn, and then you have to go to meetings and talk to other people and you
0: don't have to, but you know, you're encouraged. To. This is, this is quite a common feature of evangelical life, especially for men. Yeah. A lot of Bible studies, a lot of men today who are evangelicals, are presented with this ideal that they, they, they're struggling to live up to, but the modern world is sending so many contrary signals into their, into their brains mm-hmm. and into their eyeballs yeah. that you're living in this constant stress. You're, you're living in... in, a, in a, you're, yeah. you, it's, and, and the mental energy required, the psychological energy required... To live in a world which is telling you not to do any of these things, and your body is going nuts and you you 're also at that point yeah. sexually speaking right hormonally speaking, <laughs> just all over the map right yeah, you're just yeah. it's just it 's it's, it's the human male especially yeah. is just producing way too much sperm for, <laughs> yeah. for the world to even count as for some yeah. mysterious biological reason that 's how we are as a species, yeah. but yeah, you try not to. You try and be a young man and never masturbate, as you are supposed to never masturbate, and and you'll go out out of your out of your tree if you. If, well, if, not only are you not
1: supposed to, but if you do, you're you're you've offended the Almighty. You know, he's looking down and is really pissed off at you.
0: So, let's let's think about this for a second. I, I don't want to focus on the sex stuff as such, because yeah, but what goes through the head of the the evangelical dad who? is before he goes to bed at night, with it, he goes down to the basement and rubs, a, rubs something out, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and he goes back upstairs. What's going on in his head? It's like this war, right? And, and at some level, in that kind of war that you're constantly in, you want to find a place that's more secure for yourself. So one of the options has become even more insistent upon your sinfulness and on the need to there's a rigidity involved in this that can lead to doubling down in ways that that really a a, a very difficult psychologically i mean catholicism we have this confessional question where we can we can unload our yeah our guilt and and but also because we're we don't quite have the same sense of humans as utterly bloody damned we're so terrible we are so that we can we can get better we can do things that make Life a little better for ourselves. We can be better at other people. Mm-hmm. Can stop thinking about ourselves so much. You know, as a kid, I was told I go, go visit the old lady down the street to keep her company. I need to. Mm. There, there are things I could do to to make myself a better person. Whereas it seems to me that part of the theology you're talking with, you really can't do anything but pray for God to save you.
1: Yeah, and at that, you know, at this time I wasn't a dad. I was just a single, no, I you know, mean. single guy with no real meaningful female relationships. But you know, the only thing you can really do is self-flagellate. Your is self-flagellate. Like you know, I make a comparison to the image of I believe they are Shiite fundamentalists in the city of Najaf. I just remember seeing this image of them marching through Najaf on a holy day with whips, you know, causing themselves to bleed. And that's kind of, you just, just abase yourself. And it caused deep, deep shame and self-loathing. There was one guy who came to one of these, you know, awful meetings that we had with five to 10 young guys sitting around talking about this, who actually told us he thought about cutting off his own dick, you know, because of this. That is, and he, I don't think he was joking. I mean, that is the level of, of shame and self-hatred that this kind of thing produced.
0: And in terms of dating, there were you had two modes. You were courting someone, mm-hmm. and almost as soon as you started courting them, you were expected to marry them. Yeah. So there was not much of a dating scene, as it were. So how did that work out for you?
1: You know, not well. I mean, it. it I, I'm. I was already, again, until journalism has made me more extroverted. But I was pretty introverted, even though I was, you know, as you say, I was. I got along well in high school. And I was athletic, I still was pretty introverted, couldn't think of the right thing to say. And I always compare myself with my with my wife, Allison. She I always use the the metaphor of an aperture and a camera. Some people's apertures are wide open and and they kind of absorb everything around them. And other people's are more narrow and they just kind of are able to move, you know, ahead more more, more quickly without a lot of complication and i've always had a wider aperture so everything in my environment has always been very much like in my face so i think all of that made it hard for me to be all that confident with women and and of course this environment really exacerbated that that issue so you know i would have very brief relationships with women and you know freak out at the level of commitment kind of required which is what made it a relief when i met ali i was 26 and you know when you meet somebody who you really do have a meaningful connection with and it's natural it stands out especially in an environment like that was she yeah. also part of your your faith community or she, connected to it she was not part of our church but her, we came from very similar backgrounds. Her father was a minister as well from a similar church. And, uh, and so, but she was much more of a rebel than I, you know, kicked out of a concert at age 16 for refusing to stop, you know, pulling on her joint, you know, that sort of thing. She's, she's the rebel of the two of us.
0: Tell me the positive things about your faith as a child and as an adolescent, as an early adult, because yeah, you talk about the constraints and the tension... Yeah. And the, the the shame. If that were all, it was, it wouldn't get off the ground, would it? So, so that's what? Right. what that's right. also made faith, an evangelical faith, in the late twentieth, early twenty first century, worth living?
1: I think you know Yevol Levin. He wrote a book called The Fracture, Fractured Republic. I think that's the one that talks about how life was very buttoned down post war, you know, and 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 very focused on conform conformity. And uh, and my parents' generation felt the spiritual emptiness of a lot of the religion during that time. Formal structures without a lot of emotional or soul-based real, you know, passion. And I think I think the thing that really made that Jesus Movement era meaningful was that there was a there was a true authentic experience married with the idealism of young people who were willing to try out a radical kind of you know faith where they were going as far as I think they could in sharing their possessions sharing their time sharing burdens all of these things that
0: so there was um, a kind of communism there or is that exactly, what you're
1: saying exactly very much very much i mean the book of acts the way they talk about christian community is very socialistic, you know very much like our possessions are are shared among everyone and there was, a, there was a real desire for that sort of anti-materialist, anti-bourgeois lifestyle. And I think over time, people get married, they have kids, they get a house, and that becomes much harder to do. So I've already referred to the fact that for me, I'm grateful for the ways I was trained to sense and seek out an imminent experience of the divine. And then I think another thing- How would you
0: know- that it was an experience of the divine within within the theology of your own church. How could you tell that it was for real, not a not a demon or not some fantasy?
1: That question I would answer very different now than I will
0: answer it first. How
1: you would how have I would have thought it then. then? Yeah, I think how we I think that's one of the problems. I think one of the, the main markers we used was: Am I feeling strong emotions, mm. positive emotions? You know, and and I think that's fine. It's good to feel good emotions, but it's certainly not an open and shut case that that's an
0: experience of the divine. And it's so funny because, in some ways, as a Catholic growing up, I was told the exact opposite, which is that it doesn't matter what you're thinking. Right. The host is going to become the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ regardless Mm -hmm. it's an anti-subjectivity it's deeply anti-subjective it is it is there is the objective reality of the miracle of the mass you could be you know just murdered somebody you walk in there it's not going to affect anything you just witness to it and the church's teachings are there regardless of whether or not you believe them or not you know up to you there's a certain kind of Objective self-confidence in Catholicism that does not require any emotional commitment, really. I mean, that can happen. Yeah. But, well, certainly the Catholicism I was brought up in was very suspicious of feeling Mm -hmm. and of emotionalism. Yeah. But then I grew up in in England, too, which is a double whammy on that score.
1: Can I just say one more thing about my upbringing? I mean, I think the thing that I... The thing that emerged from working on this project, one of the things that emerged was my appreciation for my father, who was not one, who was not, his emphasis was not on emotion. He, he bought into it, but his, emph- he really, he, he read to us from the Proverbs and the book of Psalms pretty much every day over breakfast. And the verses in Proverbs about seeking wisdom and understanding were the, were some of the ones that stuck with me the most. And it's an interesting through line because ultimately the ways that those teachings kind of embedded themselves in me were what brought me to a point of confrontation with my father in the last several years. But he also was very big on the verse from James where it says everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry and he was he was an intellectual you know he was studying c.s lewis and writing a master's thesis on him so he was unique i think because most of the other leaders in that church and he was a leader he was a pastor until i was about age 10. most of them were you know didn't have much education or they had very little education and they were drawn to a more bombastic you know, supernaturalistic, signs and wonders type sort of faith. And some of those people are now actually leaders in the, the. I guess you would call them charismatic. Some people call them the new apostolic reformation. This is what one scholar calls the backbone of Christian Trumpism.
0: Right. Faith in that sense for many of the people around you and for you itself, you, yourself, was seems to me the the word that you come back to a lot is certainty. That the faith was a given. You had to believe it. You believed it entirely. The notion of having a questioning or doubting relationship to doctrine was really not part of the equation. It was, if you didn't believe this because you didn't properly understand it, this this is how you need to understand it. And so there's this kind of you're both emphasizing feeling, right? This mm-hmm. this this charismatic sense of excitement. You're using music mm-hmm. to create music is huge, a huge amount of music going yeah. on. Yeah. You also have this sort of absolute certainty. Yeah. Then you also have what's interesting in the '70s and '80s, particularly this 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 coordinating force of the abortion mm-hmm. question. Yeah, and. It's kind of interesting to me because if you look at Christianity, its origins, or if you look at any period in its development, this issue is not actually that salient. You, you, it, it barely exists as a question. And, of course, throughout much of the 20th century, actually, Southern Baptist Convention was mm-hmm. fine with abortion. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Episcopalian Church never had that big a problem with it. It was just the Catholics who we were the ones who were the crazies on this. But then, for some reason, you guys decided this was the— and there was this sort of strange fusion of the pro-life Catholic movement with the evangelical movement, very different, extremely different cultural and Christian traditions, but fused around this question of abortion. Why did abortion—why was abortion the critical issue for so many Christians— of your age and and your parents
1: i think it's pretty simple i think it's because we thought politics was a dirty business we were already in this very antagonistic stance towards culture and politics we didn't really want to have much to do with it we wanted mostly to do spiritual things go to church pray read our bibles and hang out with other church people so politics was something that was dirty distasteful and not something we wanted to be involved with. And so abortion, you know, there there was the there was the work of Paul Wirick and the Reagan operatives to mobilize people, but from our perspective, it was such a black and white issue. We helped somewhat by technology and insights into the womb, but it was such a black and white issue that it made politics very simple. And, you know, abortion is murder. Republicans are against abortion. Republicans are good. Democrats are evil. We can kind of check the box on politics, vote straight line Republican, and not have to worry about it a whole lot more. And, you know, that simplified it for us. So we didn't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it or doing much. So in some ways,
0: adopting abortion is your key political question allowed you to like shuck off any other political questions i, I think that was and a big also part of keep it, yeah. politics in its place so okay we don't have to worry about that too much because we know we have to do this because this is an overwhelming yeah. privilege forget about the rest of it so yeah. we're just b- becoming tribally republican but politics isn't our big thing
1: yeah and also you know ignoring politics i think most people would agree who have thought about this ignoring politics is kind of a luxury if if you are a part of society that is disenchanted or discriminated against or in some kind of dire need, politics is a huge vehicle for alleviating that problem. And a lot of conservative evangelicalism was made up of, not all, but a lot of it was made up of upwardly mobile families who could afford to kind of ignore politics, by and large. That's a
0: that's a that's a well, also lucky enough to live in a country with the First Amendment, yeah. that their core religious rights were not in any danger in the way that they would have been in other countries at other times, yeah, I mean as a Catholic in England, it's not like the history of religious persecution. It was absent from my own understanding of what it would be to be a Catholic, but it's just
1: it's a good contrast to look at the African American church because they are very conservative on a lot of these social issues or have been traditionally. Yet their politics are very different. So I think any honest examination has to wonder why is that. And uh, I think their history of, you know, battling discrimination and, and disenfranchisement is a huge clue as to why that is. They've, because
0: they they weren't just fighting for their right to believe what they believe. They were fighting for other things at the same time. Yeah. They and they much, see they've po- had to engage
1: in politics. They've right. had to engage in thoughtful reflection on on how to and you know, some people I know black conservatives who say that the black church is too much, you know, in lockstep with the Democratic Party. I think you can make that critique and uh, you know, it's 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 a critique worth engaging, but historically they they've had a much more
0: nuanced politics. But there's also an argument and this is, this is one of the arguments that comes out in your book of the role of government, how you organize helping other people, whether you do it more through private sector or charity or individual acts of compassion and a more systemic understanding of these things in which, in which you talk about structures and the need to change structures and systems. And you seem to have moved from one position to another. In other words, you're now much more concerned about what you might call systemic sin or structural mm, sin. Mm. My main question with those arguments is, how does a system commit a sin? Mm-hmm. I think it's
1: good. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I think it's good to actually take someone like my parents, and uh, and apply that question to the way I think about them, or just many of the people in that world that I grew up in. But I think I would. I, I think I've come to view individual humans through this lens. By and large, there are some people who are just mostly bad actors. But And and I don't know if I'm going to answer your question, but we'll get there. But I think most people, by and large, are doing their damnedest. They're doing their best day in and day out. And I think a lot of times we end up over allocating too much blame to individual decisions. Yes, people have agency. But I think so much of what we do, so many of the mistakes we made, are a big part of them is the context that shaped us, like the the mistakes that we make are often because of the, the forces that are acting upon us, the incentives, the pressures, all of those things. And so in reflecting on my own story, in reflecting on some of the mistakes that I feel like my parents' generation made, I've come more to blame the context, the culture, the systems, the structures, rather than them. I think they were doing their best but I think a lot of the mistakes they made were because of things that were
0: somewhat outside of their control. Well, this seems like demoralizing people's lives, saying they're not really capable of, it's not, of uh, you're, you're, you're rendering them, you, you, you say they have agency, but you're kind of implying they don't. No,
1: it's 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 not an either or, it's a both and, and it's a matter of emphasis.
0: But let's say, but sin, this is yeah. the question, yeah. sin is the sin is It can only be committed by an individual soul, right? Sure. So how can a system do it? I can see how a system might create injustice Mm -hmm. or it might create things that are skewed in certain ways. Mm -hmm. The system in South Korea is going to create a different way of life than a system in North Korea. Mm-hmm. The, the people are the same humans. Mm-hmm.
1: But where do I, I, I'm not sure I talk about systemic sin. I talk about systemic injustice when it comes to race, but I, I'm not sure I talk a lot about systemic sin. Maybe I do. I don't know. I, I mean, I I, re- I read the book for the audio version two weeks ago, so I should remember. But I think by and large, I'm, and I would love to get more pushback on this. I, I appreciate the opportunity. But I, I think by and large, I'm focused on this this question of what you seem to be saying systems. in the
0: book, to me at least, yeah. is look, it's all very well to worry about your own soul, but you have to worry about other people's souls as well, I, and whether you are contributing in some way or other to the impoverishment of their spiritual potential.
1: No, I, 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 I wouldn't think. put it in those words. I would say that it is we were not taught growing up to worry about human flourishing, by and large, in society and i don't think we were trained to i don't think i don't think our we built a culture that helped people acquire the tools of living at, that out in public life what you might call the common good exactly we were and i think to this day it remains the case that a lot of evangelical churches are good at training people in how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good father, mother, brother, sister, uncle, whatever and a good employee even but i think that evangelicalism, because of that, largely, in some large part, because of that history of disengagement and isolationism, I think there's been a, a, a poverty of catechizing people into what Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr called civic righteousness, which is applying your faith to a complicated world, a complicated politics. There, there's an—and and I'm still—I would call myself, you know, as people called Donald Trump, a baby Christian— I would call myself a baby Christian when it comes to l- even knowing what I would recommend, because I'm not an expert on, you know, church structure, ecclesiology, on, on cate- catechesis. But I do sense that, you know, when we turned our back on history and tradition, we cut ourselves off from a lot of resources that I think more mainline denominations and certainly the Catholic Church have had to, tr- to inculcate people in a way of living in in the world outside the church that is able to sort of f- bring the values of Christianity
0: and apply them to a world where the answers are not super easy. But the values of Christianity as the church, as your evangelical church saw them, were basically the inerrancy of the Bible. Yes. So th- there we have a bit of a problem because you use your brain and you know something about history and, and 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 the history of scripture and the various wildly diverging interpretations of scripture that are available to anyone and you realize this fixation on this inerrancy, at least let me put this as a critique to you, is, is just kind of a, is, is a replacement for faith in a way. It, it's saying, okay, we this is true and whenever we have a different problem we go to this book yeah now it may say two different things in two different places but we we're not going to we can't deal with that so we'll just we'll just emphasize one or the other um and insist that we obey it now so you have both this detachment from history and tradition yep which gives you a very free-floating christianity in a way then you have this Emotionalism, this charismatic fervor, this 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 sense of trying to get feeling into faith. And then you have this inerrancy. And the other thing you have is in all of these places you have an authority figure, you have the pastor, you have some almost always male and usually older that you kind of defer. Your interpretation of the scripture to that person, so you have this—you have both an emo. What I'm, what I'm getting at, and forgive me for taking a while. No, you have an good. emotional yeah. kind of mass consciousness. Yep, you have a severing from traditional anchors or restraints,
1: and a disengage a severing from engagement
0: with the real world, with the actual world outside yeah, of it. Right. Then you have a reliance upon certainty and a figure of authority who will fix it for you or tell you what to do or tell you how to w- adjust your life in, in any particular context, some of which may be good in, in, in many contexts. I'm not, I'm just creating the structure. But when I see that, I see exactly why a fundamentalist movement would turn to someone like Trump, mm. which is, which was the moment it seems to me that you really hit a wall mm-hmm. because you have plenty of concerns and as i understand from the book and maybe i'm misreading some of your your the chronology here but it was when they turned around and endorsed this person and not just but but almost overwhelmingly supported this person supported this person who clearly by their own standards utterly unsuited for moral life of any kind yeah now here's how i would Try and explain it and I think one of the weaknesses of the book you don't quite explain it psychologically they really did feel they're losing everything Mm. and abortion was one of the things even though they're making they've they've made clear strides in the abortion debate but the other question that did seem to intensify their panic was marriage Yep, and for me (laughs) it's interesting to me because I was living in another world and I was I was trying to sell radical gaze on marriage and on civil marriage. I was trying to make distinctions between a religious sacrament of marriage and a civil license, as, as so you'd have a different role as a citizen as you would as a person of faith. So, for example, a Catholic citizen may not recognize a divorce, but is happy to live in a society in which divorce is legal. And if they interact with that person as a fellow citizen, they would acknowledge the reality of that legality. Yeah. But they really did feel as if they that, that particular loss seemed to really hit hard, yeah. harder than I understood, even though I spent a lot of time talking to evangelicals about this and fundamentalist Catholics and trying to understand, and trying to argue in ways that we're not trying to threaten you. We're really not. Mm-hmm. But I have to say some of those evangelicals are not entirely wrong were they there is considerable hostility to their worldview that they have lost with every single major culture war fight except abortion uh but even there we still live in a country with some, with you know historically liberal well obviously not it's changing dramatically but but why marriage why was that the issue that really freaked them out i mean there's three or four different
1: things I would I would want to touch on there when it comes to religious freedom y- yeah there's and there's hostility towards the Christian point of view but I think you can only feel like you're losing everything if you feel like the laws of the land should reflect what you believe are biblical teachings which it's not theocracy, but it's a very aggressive form of maybe Christian nationalism. I don't know what the scholarly term is for it, but it's a belief that the government should reflect your interpretation of uh, of Christianity rather than a common good human flourishing type of marker. Now, there are arguments that, you know, from the right, that equality, same-sex marriage does not promote human flourishing. And I, I don't know where, whether that comes more from Catholics or from evangelicals, but that or from another, you know, corner, but that's out there. But most people just feel like the the government is not is reflecting less and less of my point of view. Which,
0: and they're not wrong, because historically, the United States was historically a much more yes. conservative and Christian country than right. it is today. Right, a much whiter country than it is today. They're not making. They're not inventing this stuff. And right. when you right. when you add in this particularly difficult areas of of, of corporate work policies of, of, of non-discrimination, of sure. of wokeness in the workplace, of the sense that their view that, for example, it's simply that gay sex is wrong, therefore gay marriage is wrong, they feel as if they're now for things that they've always believed, and in fact my own church continues to say the same things that suddenly they're regarded as as bad as a racist bigot for sure holding those particular positions i yes. don't believe that yes right i no, really don't believe that, that because i know they're not I just, I just i i i know it's a different thing that nexus of
1: i think people have still to this day failed to understand how powerful a motivation or mobilization you know factor that nexus is of equating conservative views on marriage and sexuality to racist bigotry. And that actually is one of the things that uh, people who were involved in the Respect for Marriage Act from the conservative side uh, just last winter were trying to disentangle. They were trying to say that people can have conservative views if they have a conservative view of a holy text, the scriptures are another, and they have a conservative view on on sexuality, You know, they don't get to impose their will on other people, but neither will we say that they are bigots for saying that or for believing that. And so I think that actually has been a huge motivation. I remember back in 2004, I was a young reporter covering a dispute in Montgomery County, Maryland, just outside DC over a sex ed curriculum in probably elementary school and even then there were there were you know rumors on the internet or reports on the internet of pastors in probably Canada I want to say who were being thrown in jail for conservative views on this so this has been in the water for two decades a decade and a half or a decade or so by the time our burger fell happened and so i would just say probably two or three quick
0: things on this hi there One, yes, this is things. not two, the end of the this podcast in fact we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. andrewsullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money, and you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's DishCast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.